MSW Media. Hi, Daily Beans listeners. I am Diane Erickson, host of the podcast One Sweet Dream. And since Allison Gill is on vacation, we thought it would be a good opportunity to introduce a new podcast, One Sweet Dream, which is a podcast that re-examines the story of the Beatles. This is a great option when you need a break from the news, which everyone needs now and then. So if you like what you hear with the episode, there's a link in the show notes to subscribe to One Sweet Dream. Now, the episode I'm sharing today is one that I did with legendary singer-songwriter Amy Mann. And in this episode, we discuss the film Get Back. But before we jump in, I'd like to prime you a little bit about the podcast's approach, because Amy and I discuss a lot of the podcast's ideas and insights. So I thought it might be helpful to have a grounding in the podcast's point of view and reason for being. However, if you want to just jump straight to the episode, please jump ahead about 12 minutes. If not, well, let me tell you about the podcast. So Once We Dream shines new light on the Beatles, illuminating their story in ways not seen before, which is important because despite the hundreds, if not thousands of books that have been written about them, we still haven't gotten their story all figured out. The mainstream story we know is limited and biased because It was so largely defined in a few key periods, including the wildly emotional, political, and partisan period of the breakup. And that means it's inherently flawed and full of tropes and faulty baseline assumptions that skew everything. In fact, Cynthia Lennon, John Lennon's first wife, flagged that the story we know is not correct. She said this about what she read in books, that an awful lot of it was factually right, but emotionally wrong which is a big problem because if we've got the emotional arc of the story wrong, then what do we have other than a bunch of facts and figures and dates? And I think we've all felt this dissonance with the story because we as a culture have resoundingly rejected every single explanation the Beatles have ever provided for the breakup. For 50 years, we've been asking, yeah, but what really happened? It's as if we intuitively sense that something is amiss, that we don't have the whole story, which according to Cynthia Lennon, we don't. So we need to dig deeper to try to make sense of the emotional and the psychological story to get to the whys behind everything. And the Beatles left us a mountain of evidence to explore if we're willing to dig into it, which I am and this podcast does. Historians say it takes about 50 years to tell the story of an event properly because only then Do we have the objectivity and the information to tell the story in a more balanced way? And so here we are a little over 50 years out and have I got a great new story to tell. One that evolves it, not destroys it, but moves it forward. Because while we've always known their story was epic, I'm here to tell you there is an even better, sexier and more amazing story that's been hiding in plain sight And that is what I want to share with you through this podcast. And there is still so much to learn, which is so exciting because this is the Beatles. Is there anything more fun and fascinating than exploring the lives and work of these incredible, 
complex, deeply flawed, and deeply amazing artists who were at the epicenter of the grooviest, coolest scene of the world? Not for me, which is why I've been willing to research them so intensively, obsessively, deconstructing and reconstructing their story, their lives, their interviews, and their music in order to get to some fresh thinking. And their story is made all the more interesting and intriguing by the fact that at the heart of it is a creative love story between four men who loved each other tremendously. In fact, Derek Taylor, the Beatles press agent, said he considered the Beatles to be the 20th century's greatest romance. And I think it was between us and them and between the Beatles themselves. And I think we intuitively know this. We can hear it in their music, we can see it in their interactions, and we sense it in their behaviors. It's time to see this reflected in their story as well. This is why the breakup never made sense. John Lennon doesn't act like a guy who doesn't care or got bored. In fact, none of the Beatles act like guys who are desperate to break up, even George Harrison when you dig more deeply. And to understand the breakup requires getting to the roots of the people, their character, their relationships, and the dynamics between them, developing really a whole new set of insights and understandings, which then need to be pulled through the entire story. I call this podcast One Sweet Dream because the dream encapsulates so much of what I love about the Beatles. It reflects partnership because it was a shared vision, but it also has a sort of mysticism and idealism to it. It was a concept they all loved and believed in more than anything, and they made it come true. The dream is the Beatles, and the Beatles are the dream. We know this because when the Beatles broke up, John announced the dream was over, bitterly claiming he no longer believed. You know, the, the, whatever there was supposed to be, you know, in everybody's head, and including our own for a period. I don't, it was a, it was a dream. So I don't believe in the dream anymore. But of course, he never really let go of the dream because it was only a few years later when reconciling with McCartney that he wrote a new song declaring he believed again and was dreaming away. suggests that the dream, like their partnership, really never died. Maybe it just went through a different phase. Lennon and McCartney were great believers in dreams and mind them often. And they had the same prophetic dream of finding gold when they met each other. And they were such romantics that they believed they could enter each other's dreams. I mean, who knows? Maybe they could. But this is the level of connectedness that they had. And this is the level of closeness that needs to be taken into account in the Beatles story. Not just in terms of lip service, because a lot of lip service is paid to it, but in terms of revisiting the story through this lens, considering how they were impacted and influenced by one another, how they were acting and reacting to each other always. The Lennon-McCartney relationship and partnership particularly needs to be revisited and reinterpreted because it was one of the great casualties of the breakup. 
Lennon downplayed their partnership as a means of dealing with his heartbreak and anger, and despite reversing himself on this issue later, his original account stuck, and ever since then their partnership has been wildly misrepresented. And given that it is the axis around which the Beatles revolves, it is critical that we get this right. Because if we don't understand the soulmate bond between Lennon and McCartney and how essential they were to each other always, not just during the Beatles, but always, and if we don't understand how equivalent they were in terms of artistry and love for each other, then we just won't get the story right because everyone who knew them well, everyone, supports this story. One of the major blind spots in the authorship has been John Lennon's tremendous love and respect for McCartney, which was equivalent to McCartney's love and respect for Lennon. And making this one shift and understanding this changes everything. It was never an asymmetrical relationship. I know we all have been led to believe this was the case, but when we go back and re-examine all the evidence, a different story emerges. My best friend. He was a, a great guy who I admire to this day very, very much. And I feel very lucky to work with him. And I think he was lucky, he felt lucky to work with me. Um, it may sound big-headed, that, but I think if he was here... I think to portray it as asymmetrical is to simply misread the dynamics, mistaking Paul's tenacity and strength and kindness for weakness and need, and mistaking John's bitter words for dislike and disrespect rather than hurt and sadness. John Lennon was so much more sensitive and loyal and nurturing and vulnerable than we've been led to believe, not just with Yoko Ono, but with everyone who was close to him, and especially the other people who were of primary importance to him. And I think it's people who haven't done their homework. So, you know, Lennon was a hard sort of guy. John was not hard. John was the softest guy I've ever met. John was a baby. A lovely little baby, John was. Oh, but when he got in front of him, uh, the glasses come out. Yeah, that's that was his front. John had one of the biggest fronts. But then, if you look at John's history, father leaving home at three, etc. This is a boy growing up on his own. So many insecurities. I, I, I can totally sympathise, particularly now at this age. Now that I've got kids, and I can see what this kind of stuff does to kids. Boy, can I see what it did to John. And this is not to say that John wasn't tough and acerbic, hilarious and genius and capricious and sometimes spiky. He was. But this other side existed as well. And he is the one who told us about this side. And to me, it makes him so much more appealing, captivating, human and brave. The truth-talking character who wanted peace while blowing up the Beatles and spoke about love while expressing nothing but contempt for his bandmates, who he had loved for a decade, was confusing and one-dimensional. Understanding this other side of him makes so much more sense of the story and of people's great love for John Lennon. And of course, McCartney's image needs to be radically adjusted as well. I don't know why the man who has written so many of the most famous and beloved songs of the century hasn't been awarded the depth, passion, genius, and artistry that is required to do so. He's so badass and creative that I suspect he's just more clever than us all, and we just miss it. 
And I think another thing that impacts our view is that for so long, he's been the dominant narrator of the Beatles story. And so we empathize with his perspective. And what he does is he shines a light on the others, on his beloved departed bandmates. And so we almost feel overly familiar with him and his perspective, where his gaze is our gaze and it's on the others. And he's a fan like us, so charming and normal, but no, he's not. He's the most successful songwriter of all time. I think that's why people were disoriented when they saw Get Back. It's like, oh yeah, he's that guy. Maybe we should start giving him a little more credit. Lennon certainly did. When John Lennon was asked in 1976, the one word he associated with McCartney, his word was extraordinary. There's a reason why these two bonded so deeply. They were both exceptional. I quoted Cynthia Lennon earlier, but now I'm going to quote Linda McCartney, who said this, they weren't opposites. They were so alike. The sad thing is John isn't with us anymore, and who knows what would have happened. You know, it's the press. You read about history, and you know, it's not really what happened. That's why I'm glad I got pictures of them smiling together and got to show people that, you know, they loved each other. They were friends, and it was deeper than any of us will ever know. So when Paul McCartney complains in songs like Early Days that people aren't getting it right, that the version he sees doesn't reflect his experience, maybe we should believe him and try harder. Lennon and McCartney were always in a dance, a dance so strange to quote Lennon. And this dance was a part of the magic of the Beatles. But of course, the other part of the magic came from George Harrison and Ringo Starr who each brought their own genius to the band. And their unique contributions also need to be recognized. And their images need to be adjusted as well. Harrison is so complex and fascinating. He was simultaneously so independent and so deeply committed to the Beatles. His particular genius gave the Beatles such an exquisite flavor and spirituality. And of course, Ringo's contributions, both in terms of artistry and wisdom, need to be so much better understood. Highlighting the deep love and connectedness between the Beatles is important, but it is only one of the many ways that One Sweet Dream challenges the Beatles story. We go so much further, reconsidering everything. So I hope you'll join us at One Sweet Dream, where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. I leave you now with the episode that I did with Amy Mann. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please subscribe to One Sweet Dream podcast. It's a great time to be subscribing because I am about to start the reprise series where we revisit many of the key episodes. They will come out on Tuesdays and Fridays every week and are all currently available on One Sweet Dream's Patreon community, which is patreon.com forward slash One Sweet Dream, where they will remain ad-free. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. And now on to the episode. Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. 
hearts that live in fire What is the promise that flames inspire Can you just burn it out Shadows and memories that won't stay Hello and welcome to the next installment of the Get Back series where we explore, discuss, and obsess over Peter Jackson's epic documentary series, Get Back. Oh, I'm so excited. I know that Amy Mann is on today's agenda, I know. right? Yes, I am talking to the brilliant and amazing Amy Mann. She's so amazing. This was really exciting for me because I'm such a huge fan of her music, you know, so it was a total honor to speak with her. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know who Amy Mann is, well, you should know her. She's just incredible. I was so happy to have her on the podcast. Mm -hmm. She was so insightful. I love this interview um, because she really got inside some of the dynamics as well as the Lennon and McCartney relationship um, in a really thoughtful, empathetic, and non-judgmental way. Interestingly, like John Lennon, she had kind of a, a messed up childhood. And so she, she really understood how traumatic that could be. And she talks about how she recognizes some of John's behaviors. And, um, you know, obviously she's done a, a great deal of exploring and thinking about mental health issues. And, you know, she shared some of her thoughts on that and, and her insight is really profound and important, I think, to our understanding of the Beatles as a whole. So um, I, I love this episode. I found Amy to be charming and lovely and funny and just a joy to speak with. Well, I guess. Let's jump in. Let's jump in. Yeah. All right. This is Amy Mann talking about Get Back. Here we go. Spirits and specters that live in the sulfur streams Find their redemption in charcoal dreams Can you just burn it out so thoroughly You'll never see I'm really thrilled to talk to you about the Beatles for a few reasons. First, you're an incredible songwriter. Um, and Thank you. I, I love your latest album. Oh, it's thanks so much. Film. It's so beautiful. It's so beautifully written. You sound amazing. It's oh, thank you. incredible. I really love oh, that's, it. That's really nice to hear. I really appreciate that. It's also interesting to talk to you because you've worked in bands, you've worked in collaborations, you've worked solo so that's really nice because I think you bring all that experience to looking at the Beatles. And, you know, as we talked about, you may not know some of the trivia that a jean jacket would know. Like, you know, in 1963, they played in, you know. Oh, yeah, in, I don't know any of that stuff. Yeah, my, you know? my husband is a big Beatle, Beatles nerd and has, in fact, he's going through a, a box of, of bootlegs that he bought in the, yeah. you know, 60s and 70s. Yeah. And um you know, he has an entire entire box of just Beatles bootlegs. So Actually, he knows all that, you know, like, oh, well, the singles were released in there yes, and then it yeah. didn't appear on the American version until then. Yeah. And, you know, I'm like, I don't, I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So you are married to a musician. And I'm wondering if uh, you guys really had different perspectives when watching Get Back. We we agreed on most most of the uh, the, the assessments of the band dynamics. I think, um, you know, I, I mean, there really is a thing that being in a band, knowing band dynamics, knowing 
the collaborator dynamics, especially like the song, you know, cause he, he's pretty, pretty much a solo writer, but I've collaborated with a handful of people and, and songwriting. So that, so I think I have more of like a, an insight into what that kind of dynamic is. But um, yeah, I mean, we sort of, we sort of agreed. I think that he was more cognizant of the, uh, of George feeling like he was being treated like the little brother all the time you know i don't know how if we should jump into yeah 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 sure sure jump into the get back assessment definitely i'm really interested to hear how you view things i i know that you have said that uh you like the podcast so clearly i think you've got excellent uh taste (laughs) but um what did you think of it overall i mean it's really interesting to I, I definitely felt like the uh the eight hours was kind of needed because you really need to like sit there and soak up the dynamic which is a thing that happens over time you know like you can't really you can't really get it from from an edited hour and a half movie i don't think um right and you know i think these were particular circumstances you know like extraordinary circumstances and a lot a lot of stuff was going on um you know my (laughs) I have to say my first thought is the amount of dicking around in the studio is like (laughs) it's really mind-blowing because you know from my point of view as a musician I mean I know they don't have to worry about paying for studio time like they're millionaires whatever but um but there's like I, I can't believe nobody is getting getting frustrated with like, look, I don't want to play blue suede shoes again. Like, can we just <laughs> rehearse the song? They've got to do a concert and write and record a record in two weeks. Like I know they're like I know Paul McCartney is a savant and everything, but I mean John doesn't have any songs. Like that just seems so crazy to me. And like Paul is like he there's a minute where he goes like we should have a plan of work and like mm-hmm. get something done every day <laughs> okay um and but he was Everybody saying that him. yeah and it, and when he was saying that was when john was like at his most disconnected um so maybe that was his attempt to like pull it together but like once they're in apple they are just there's it's like a it's like a comedy writers room it's that's more it's way more writer's room energy than it is um and you know tim heidecker may have said that too but it's way more writer's room energy than it is uh uh musicians in a studio you know although like the dicking around like uh, definitely people people sort of noodling but i don't know just like playing whole songs and going through whole songs doing a bit like i'm definitely not used to that that's real that was really interesting to me Well, I wonder if they would have done that on any other album, because this is such an unusual circumstance in that they know they're being filmed as much as they, I think they forget sometimes they are, are also being filmed, you know? And that's interesting to me too, because I definitely felt like in the first part at Twickenham Studios, Paul, I got the sense Paul sort of felt a responsibility to like always be on and be playing the piano and talking about his process and yeah you know, because he knew that he was more nervous about, you know, film rolling and, Mm -hmm. but 
I don't know. I, it's hard to know if they, if that, like, I wouldn't have, <laughs> like, my cover of Blue Suede Shoes, I would not have thought would be entertaining to, <laughs> you know, to watch. But, um, yeah, maybe they wanted to to keep it loose. I don't know. Like, I have my theory about that, which is that the more playing they do, the more comfortable John gets because it reminds him of what, you know, what their relationship is. Yeah. I think John comes in feeling really distant and really fragmented. Yep. And I'll tell you, like, my, the big revelation I had or what I think is, I don't know, this is my take, is I I felt like John is has some legit issues. And, um, you know, I've learned on your podcast that uh, that he was doing a lot of LSD and he mm-hmm. was also on heroin. So, you know, that doesn't really help to, mm-hmm. to have an integrated personality, <laughs> you know, at that. So, but, so I felt like his, you know, his kind of absurdist thing and, you know, when Peter Sellers is there and he keeps staring at the camera and he is absolutely not connecting with another human. I mean, he seems really disconnected and, um, and uh, and then later, it's such a contrast because the more he is with Paul, yeah, and the more they're working together and playing songs, and he's reminded of what they have together, and that Paul is very responsive to him. Like Paul is not at all freezing him out, or you know, Paul is like am- amazingly non-judgmental and very like giving and very accepting of John's idiosyncrasies. Um, but you could see John kind of really uh, start to stabilize and, um, you know, and become more lucid and, and seem less disconnected and dissociated. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read the official Beatles biography by Hunter Davies. Uh-uh. So they did this official biography in 1967. And there's an interview with John and he talks about that if he's away from the Beatles for a few days, he loses himself. Yeah. And he needs to be around them to ground himself again. You can, and I you just can think feel that it. Yeah. you can feel it. And you can see John starts to physically look better. Yeah. He starts to have baths and do his hair, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. He, he looks better. He, he just seems more, he seems more present. Uh, I think, I think they really anchor him, his relationships with them. You know, I think they're his family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it just like, it felt honestly like very familiar. Cause I, I, you know, I had a very fragmented family. I really understand this feeling and I understand the feeling of a feeling like you're kind of blown into pieces. If you're, if you're not with people who stabilize you, felt very familiar. That's interesting. You know, I think that so many people see John as being tough and entirely together and there's this other side of John that to understand the full dynamic of the Beatles, you have to understand that this is what John is like too. Yeah. And, you know, it was really interesting to me because I, you know, not being, I mean, I'm a very big Beatles fan, but I'm not a Beatles fanatic and I mm-hmm. don't, you know, I'm not somebody who necessarily has to do a, a huge deep dive into, into a band to enjoy their their music. And, you know, I mean, John Lennon was like one of the Beatles, like that's, you know, I didn't really know that much about, about him. And I, you know, except you could feel the the book on him, you know, being like, he was the real genius. And Paul was like the guy who played, you know, 
granny songs or <laughs> exactly yeah he was the cool one in, in yeah. essence and um and i look at this footage and i'm like he is clearly the most disturbed yeah clearly the most disturbed the most codependent yeah uh the least um you know in the least in integrated of a personality i mean you he really what does that mean exactly? What does well, that mean to he, you? He feels very he feels very fragmented. Like he feels like very dissociated and and fragmented and um I mean he seems mentally ill to me. Like speaking from experience, like <laughs> you know, like he it's he just it's there's a familiar thing, like you know, ha, like I've had my own episodes of severe dissociation and and he and he feels like he's just has that flavor to me um and you know he's lucky to have these guys be his family and really uh you know really surround him and and prop him up but um you know you can tell that he doesn't know what to do with himself that he doesn't even feel like he is himself when they're not around you know when not only when they're not around when he's not connected when he doesn't feel connected and and I think that your theory of that he was very threatened by the relationship that Paul's relationship with Linda, I think that that really makes, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. That feels right. Why do you think that? Because I don't know, Paul is like his mother, you know, and he, you know, and, <laughs> and he's very connected to him. And if somebody gets in between that, you just don't know, you know, you can't. You know, I think he had like kind of a little kid feeling of like, well, how can I survive without my mother? If I'm not yeah. my mother's favorite, what does that make me? Like, I'm alone. I'm lost in the woods, you know? I think John didn't have necessarily somebody looking at him. You know, so I, I sort of think when Paul and John met and saw each other and Paul really saw him, Paul yeah. wasn't afraid of John when he met him, yeah. unlike everybody else. Yeah. You know, Paul saw John and John respects Paul so much that, you know, he he wants to impress Paul, unlike these other dudes that were around him who, you know, they were John's buddies. But I think that when he met Paul, Paul was somebody really special and got him. Yeah. And so I think Paul's eyes on him, you can see John kind of flourishes when Paul gives him space. Yeah. To perform. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, yeah. And you can tell he does want to impress him, but you know, Paul, the way Paul talked about John, I mean, listen, having somebody like John Lennon in a band would, would drive me crazy. No um, I don't know, you know, like I, like, just somebody with, with a temper who goes to extremes, who's like super flighty, who you have to talk off the ledge all the time. Yeah. You know, I think that would, I think that would be very stressful, but, but Paul is incredibly, tolerant and understand like he just accepts him 100% for who who and who he is and where he is it's very sweet I mean it's it's very advanced like like he doesn't he doesn't lose his temper he doesn't say like you know we got a fucking record to make tighten it up you assholes like none of that he just joins in like if John kind of starts a riff like a comedic riff he ju he jumps right in and he starts it too because he knows it's gonna, you know, he knows John is gonna jump in and they have that connection. Like they're constantly creating between the two of them, whether it's music or this, you know, these like com little comedy bits that 
we're singing two of us as ventriloquists. Like that's so, <laughs> like such a great, crazy, bizarre idea. And like they take it all the way home. Like you know, they fully like, commit to that. Yeah. I mean, I might do that for a verse, but I'm not yeah. doing it for the whole song. <laughs> and they are playing. This is something that Tim said, and I see it too. Is that they are playing for each other. They are each other's biggest yep. audience, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They just want to make the other person laugh. That's it. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, when, when I look at the way John behaves with Paul and the way Paul is so sensitive and gentle to John, I always saw it as Paul is trying to help. There's a, an element of maturity to how Paul is dealing with yeah. John too. He's very, he's very mature. He's really mature. Any normal person would have lost their temper or, or felt like it was hopeless and walked away or felt like, I don't want to deal with these, you know, these shenanigans or, you know, somebody's like constant mood swings. But I think Paul just, he really loves playing with the Beatles and he wants to keep doing it. And, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, you could tell like he's, he's playing backseat of my car. Like, it's not like he can't go and make a record on his own. He can make a record with anyone. Yeah. I mean, and he can make it, you know, it, it was fascinating to see, I mean, all my musician friends have remarked on this, that, you know, that music just leaks out of him mm. and he can't help it. Like, I almost want to tell the, like, go to the other Beatles again, like, look, he can't help it. He's a savant. Yeah. Like, that's, he's not trying to, like, tell you what to play. It's just that he hears it already and yeah. he doesn't really understand that you can't hear the same thing. And, well, and it's, it is remarkable. I mean, it's, it's a, he's a savant. I mean, it's, you know, he's one of a kind. Yeah, actually, the scene in the cafeteria, John starts to talk about, I don't hear the flutes like you do. Right. You know, it was frustrating to him. He was saying like, look, when he was talking about Paul being a little bit too assertive about John's arrangement of his songs, uh -huh. there's another part of it where he's talking about like, I know you hear these things and I don't. And that was probably hard. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's frustrating when you, when you do hear a whole thing in your head, the other person doesn't hear it or they don't agree with it. You know, they, yeah. they want to hear it in a different, a different way. But, um, you know, just seeing Paul, uh, you know, hearing drum parts, hearing guitar part. I mean, you can tell it's all, it's all there for him. And, you know, it's just, it's not like that with most musicians, you know, we, we kind of hear our own part or we work out our part or there's trial and error. Or we play something, it's an accident. We're like, oh, that sounded good. Like, but, <laughs> you know, um, you know, different people have different skills, but like he has all, all the skills. And, and uh, I think sometimes, you know, maybe the other Beatles sort of felt like he was doing it at them, but it's, yeah. he, you know, he, he can't help it. Well, that's interesting because a lot of non-musicians look at this and they get really annoyed. And I interviewed another musician named Paul Thompson. He's an engineer. He wrote a book on Paul McCartney and his creative practice. And we're actually talking about George, um, George's creative practice uh, on the weekend. And he, that was his opinion too. He said he can't help it. It's like music is like a magnet to him. You can see him trying to hold back. Yes, I you can. Part two, you can. You can. It's crazy. You can see him try to hold back. He can't stop. He cannot. If there is an instrument in the room, he has to pick it up and fiddle with it. It's like the language that he speaks. Yes. 
which then like the other part that is interesting, like, or, you know, or the, on the other hand of this is how little he seems to be concerned about what the songs are about. Right. Like, <laughs> You know, he's like, what do you think? Do you have a line? What should this be? Yeah. And, you know, which is interesting because I do think that there are a lot of songs that are very revealing emotionally. But I think it's like when you tell somebody your dream and you don't know that you're you don't realize what you're saying. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, like yeah. That. I agree. And Paul since then has said that he doesn't like to filter his creative process. He just likes, you know, that he always yeah. says that he doesn't like to see therapists because that's what music is for. Mm, well, good. Sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, dis- disagree to- is different, the different thing, but um, I mean, I'm sure music is a kind of therapy for him in that it is very mood altering. Like it makes you feel good to have created something. It makes you feel good to play. It makes you feel good to play with other people because you feel connected to other people. Yeah. Um, so in those respects, it's a kind of therapy, but it's not really a replacement for therapy. I mean, well, I'm pretty sure Paul McCartney could have used some therapy in his life. Um, you know, he does seem to be, he's funny. I find him very funny in that he is wise, very wise in yeah. some ways. And the way he handles people is very wise. You know, I'm always surprised at the restraint that he has actually, even in terms of dealing with John Lennon in the early 70s, when John is kind of going crazy. And I think this speaks to what you were just saying, that when John is separated from his family, like the breakup John doesn't do very well, because I think that he he is separated from his source of stability, yeah. which was the Beatles, you know? Yeah. And Paul is very gentle with him then. Yeah. He's very mature, and he's very loving and very, very accepting. You know, there's... There's a real non-judgmental. I mean, you know, I know in the '60s it was, you know, every there was a, a bit of like, you know, don't judge anybody's trip or whatever. But yeah, yeah, yeah. even so, like you can tell he's not annoyed or frustrated at at a very, you know, like a very complicated person who probably would be very frustrating for you know for a normal person. Um, you know, it just it shows a lot of maturity and a lot of understanding. But what I find is that he's not great with words. Like he is not, you can see him, John Lennon is actually better at articulating his feelings than Paul is, I think, except through music. Paul is good through music. Totally agree. Yeah, Yeah. I I totally agree. I mean, John has, you know, written songs about like, I feel like this, this is what's happening in my life. And and I I think Paul only does it kind of accidentally, you know, (laughs) like... (laughs) You know, like, oh, for some reason, this topic was on my mind. I have no idea why. <laughs> it just it's, came out that way. You know? My friend, Jeff, said, well, you can see how they write. You can't read into their music. And I was like, I can absolutely read into absolutely. their music. Yeah. You know, you can't say that he was consciously writing that. But it's like, yeah, even now he says that, that he maybe wasn't consciously, but he thinks the subconscious comes out and it definitely Oh, totally. Does. I mean, if you write a song like Oh Darling in the middle of the, you know, that kind of turmoil, please yes. believe me, I'll never leave you. Yes. Like on some level, you know that there's someone in your life who's worried that you're going to leave them. Uh, you know, I, I definitely think that's, there's a heavy subconscious thing. There's also, and we can, we definitely see this in the, you know, in the movie, there's also a situation where you're writing where 
you're just you come up with a you come up with a word just because it's you're trying to get it to fit the meter and you can see him doing it like sweet loretta marsh (laughs) sweet (laughs) you can can see him like circling around he's just trying to like get something to feel good when he's singing it you know yeah um and you know and that definitely happens like for me when i do that i use that as a jumping off point to you know, like where, where does this fit in with things that I'm thinking about and feeling? Um, you know, I, I think if Paul does that, it's probably just a lot more unconscious. Yeah. I remarked on, Oh, darling too. When I was having another conversation, I said, I think it's very telling that this is when he writes it, you know, they're going through a moment of crisis Yeah, and then he writes it and the themes of reassuring somebody saying that he needs them. And personally, I believe that John really needed to hear that Paul needed him. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I think he needed like definitive, you know, needs to have that said in actual words. And, and, you know, that's how is Paul going to say that, but you know, in a song. And, you know, there's a lot of footage that was them, Paul and John singing that song a lot together. Oh. They sing it as call and response. And John really liked it. I would have loved to see that. That would that would have been really interesting. Yeah. You know, in this podcast, we highlighted all the stuff that, that was interesting and none of it made the film. So I was a little bit frustrated about things that I thought were important to the story. You know, specifically, I'm obviously so focused on the John and Paul relationship. Yeah. But there was a lot of that kind of stuff. A lot lot of the Paul and John, you know, you see them working together, but there was even more and there was more chemistry on something like, oh, darling. And, um, you know, Paul goes, I'll never leave you. Uh, Please believe me. And John goes, oh, I do. And they're like sort of riffing back and forth. Oh, that's adorable. Yeah. I want to see that. Yeah, it was really sweet. You know what? I'll put it in this podcast. Yeah. That's a, that would be great. Do you 
Yeah, I mean, what's the, the the original Peter Jackson cut was like, you know, 18 hours or something. Oh, yeah, that's what we need. <laughs> yeah, that's what we need. We need <laughs> like every everybody I know is is ready to sign up for that cut. Yeah. <laughs> we need it basically in real time. Yeah. <laughs> Just the, the whole two weeks. It's true. You know, the casual fans, this was way too much. And everybody else is like, bring on more stuff, bring it on. And I'm I'm just upset about the stuff that he cut, because I feel like he sanitized a little bit of the heroine. And I understand why he did that. You know, it's on Disney Plus. Uh, Oh, yeah. And how nervous was Paul about like, you know, when John would mention drugs or like that he was stoned, he was like, Mr. Lennon, do we really need to get into that? Like, he was very nervous about that. But you know, I mean, Rightly so. It's not, you know, people were not really that, I mean, certainly about heroin, but like they weren't <laughs> chill about any any drug. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot more of that. Yoko says that shooting up is exercise and, you know, you know there's a lot more Yoko. Exercise. There's... Yeah, well, I mean, we hardly hear from Yoko at all, except for like the, her nervous laugh. Just don't leave the needles lying around, you know. We've got a bad reputation now with John getting busted and that. I know what it's like for showbiz people. They're under a great strain and they need a little relaxation. And that's why he's going to bed. It's a choice between that and exercise, you know. And uh, drugs win hand down. I say hand down. Well, shooting is exercise. Shooting is exercise, oh yeah. Well, it's been lots of fun. So for Oh Darling, I listened to some conversations and I think I think people read into John's, you know, Lennon Remembers interview and, and don't sort of see from John's perspective, you know, when he's not fronting how vulnerable he can be. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so for Oh Darling, I think there's an over sympathizing with the fact that Paul's so afraid that John is going to leave, which he is. But I also think he's often being nice to John too, and trying to, trying to do things for John as well. I think he's a nice person. You know, I think he's a kind person. He does. Paul McCartney did not strike me as like really needy or desperate or codependent, like maybe a little codependent. Cause you know, I mean, he's in the Beatles and he's, you know, partners with John Lennon, like a little of that has got to happen, but yeah. he, he, you know, I think he was sad. Like he loves playing with these guys and he was sad that it was going so South and he couldn't really understand it. I mean, I don't think he's a deep thinker necessarily. He's, you know, mm-hmm. definitely not in therapy. So <laughs> we know that, you know, so he doesn't necessarily know, you know, how people work and the extent of, you know, I mean, just like knowing some of the circumstances of John Lennon's upbringing, you're like, well, he's traumatized. I mean, yeah. you, you you know, nobody gets out alive. Like nobody has that kind of, you know, like lack of parent and, you know, abandonment and absences and deaths and stuff without like being super traumatized by it. And, uh, you know, I don't know if Paul necessarily understands that, but he just has like a very deep love for John and you know he wants to play with him he loves to play you know he's just like he wants to play he's like the he's like the dog who like is just you know will you throw the ball now or or something else is going on okay but is there a ball 
Did somebody pick up the ball? I see a ball. I'm pretty sure there's a ball here. Okay, just can you throw it? Are you ready to throw it? I'm just waiting. Like, it's it's like so that. true. He just wants it to happen. He loves it. He's fucking into it. He, you know, that's all he wants to do. Yeah, even in the conversation, there's a couple of conversations where John and Paul, you know, for example, in the lunchroom scene, which has been heavily edited, just so you know, there's multiple people in that conversation. Oh, it? interesting. I have to say, I couldn't necessarily follow what was the, it's felt very fragmented, that conversation, because I, I, so I wasn't really sure what they were talking about sometimes. You know what, watching it that way, even like Jackson cut some stuff up front where John comes in and says, for me to come back, I have to swallow my ego and smother my jealousy for you. Oh, wow. And I wish you would have kept that because you sort of understand Paul's reactions to John a lot more when you, because Paul doesn't react to it. You know, it's like a thing that is known between them. Yeah. But just knowing that he came in and and said this, you sort of understand why Paul is responding. Yeah. But also it kind of made me laugh because John is getting into more the interpersonal dynamics of the group and Paul keeps taking it to the music. Oh, and it's interesting. Kind of, yeah, he keeps going into the the, the minutia of the, the music, and John's like, yeah, yeah, but, you know, and, and it made me laugh that Paul's mind keeps going to, like, remember when we were playing that song? Well, you know, Paul's thing in his childhood was, you know, first of all, you don't talk about your feelings. You don't really acknowledge your feelings. Uh, you cover them up by, uh, you know, getting around the old Joanna. So, you know, like, ah, da, 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 you know, like, I think he doesn't want to talk about those interpersonal no. dynamics. Yeah. Um, I think it makes him really uncomfortable. And so it's it's kind of funny to me that, of course, he immediately tries to take it to music because, Music is like everything. Music does, you know, music's the panacea. It's It covers up the sadness. It covers up the anger. It covers up all, you know, it's the blanket that that covers all. I always thought if I interviewed Paul McCartney, I would be like, have this guitar while we speak. Can Absolutely. I, oh, my God. Yes. Could I interview could you, you at your piano? Could you answer in this question in song? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a great idea, actually. Yeah. I thought it was hilarious when he was trying to give the kid the piano lesson. Oh my God, that was amazing. And the kid is like, um, I don't even play piano, but like, <laughs> yes, by all means, keep going. <laughs> and then his his learning, his takeaway was like, I guess I just need to buy a piano because all the songs are in there. Well, it's, I wasn't sure what, you know, I don't know, there's probably stuff that's cut out. Now, I wasn't really sure what he was, what he was talking about, but I mean, he's playing Martha, my dear, which which, you know, kind of modulates and goes all over the place. And he's like, yeah, you know, you could just do this and you could do that. And like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, it's so simple in his mind. It's so simple. Like, oh, what I just modulated, like a totally separate key. Why, why is that so confusing? Like he, and it's, you know, but for him, it's easy. Like he can see it laid out. It's all, it's all visible, you know? Yeah. I feel badly for Linda McCartney. She talked about him trying to give her piano lessons and it did not go well. I can't even imagine how she learned. He's just too advanced. I mean, he, you know, cause it, it's too easy for him. Like there's, I don't even know what it's like to think like that. You know, for, for me, I, you know, I have to learn, I have to learn. I need to learn a structure. I need to learn why things work. And then, 
you know, and then after it's in me for a while, I, it starts to, you know, it starts to have more of a, you know, I can approach it more intuitively, but like I, you know, it's just with him, it was, it's just implanted. Like, I don't know, like he listens to one thing and then he knows it. It's crazy. Do you think the other Beatles are the same? No, I think he's really, he's really special. Like he really is one in a million. There's, there's just not, you know, I think they're all incredibly good. Incredibly yep. good. Jesus Christ. Like, let's, <laughs> let's talk about how amazing Ringo is. Yeah. Like he's in this, he's in this shitty TV studio and then he's in, you know, the Apple studios and then he's on a rooftop and every mm-hmm. time his drums sound fantastic. Yeah. Because of him, because it's the way he plays. Yeah. There's just some players that are like that. He's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, they're like shockingly good live band, which like, I guess I knew that, but I don't know. Like when you see the ramp up to it and even, you know, as unrehearsed as it seemed, I mean, I'm sure they must have gotten some rehearsal in there somewhere (laughs) in between yeah yeah but uh incredibly good live band incredibly Mm. good incredibly charismatic in a way that like I don't know I guess I just forgot about yeah were you sad that they didn't do any more performing after that oh my god it's tragic it really is and you know I don't even like let it be like that was not I don't really care for those songs they're not my favorite Beatles songs I did not like that record when I was a kid. I, it sounded different than the other ones. It, it yeah. was not, you know, I don't know. There's something I didn't like about it. <laughs> oh? I mean, I would certainly like it more having seen this record. Um, but even with even with all that, seeing seeing the final performance, I was like, oh, holy shit. Yeah. They're unbelievable. And And by the way, it's fucking freezing. <laughs> and I've played gigs and like, you know, 60 degree 50 degree weather and your hands immediately freeze up you can't move <laughs> like poor john is like trying to do that riff like forget it <laughs> you can't move your fingers you see him blowing on his hands yes. to try to warm up his hands yes. i know what it's like to play a show when you're really cold it is yeah. really impossible and they're like fucking bringing it i know they were I so amazing it. yeah it's so unfortunate because i think that they got so much from it you know yeah look oh, at how absolutely. happy they are so happy they love playing together you know when you play with other musicians it's just like it creates a magic it's thing that is greater than the sum of its parts and it's you know that that goes beyond just the sound of the music it's there's like a spiritual connection and you really feel i don't know you just you feel connected to to people in this very spiritual it's like being in love you know like it's being in love with like your fellow musician like as they're playing like what they're playing and it's kind of crazy well that connects well to i think a lot of what we talk about it's so hard you know talking about lennon and mccartney or the interpersonal dynamics is so difficult because you know, there's a group of people that will take it right into the sexual and they have to understand it that way right. or just into brotherly love. And I don't think it's either one of those. It's some special creative thing. I mean, my sense was that they have that thing where they're like, where you look at the other person, you know, as they come up with this great part or as they're singing a harmony and like, it is like kind of like being in love. And my sense of you know and this is just like based on what you know nothing but 
my sense about Lenin was that he his boundaries were very porous anyway, and he was very seductive as a person, like, you know, because he had that desperation to get you to like him, to get you to like him a lot to get, so you would take care of him. And, uh, you know, my feeling was like, and if that turned sexual and that's how it had to be, then fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, if that locked it in great, um, whatever it takes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, I, I just talked about that in a recent episode where it's not, a, it, it's just sort of a search to really connect and yeah. feel safe and feel intimate with somebody and feel and like to, they're And to merge, you know, because like, like yes. if you're merged with someone, you don't have the pain of feeling separate and, and cut off, you know, you're, you're one, you know. Well, it's interesting because Lennon McCartney, that was probably Lennon's idea. I, I don't know. But before Paul, he had a best friend named Pete Shotton and it was like, Pete and John, one name. And then he meets yeah. Paul and they're Lennon McCartney. And then he meets Yoko and they're John and Yoko. Yeah. You know, this it's desire. A, yeah. yeah, it's to, to to blend and to merge and, you know, to have a, you know, it's mommy and I are one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think his love, like we talk about Paul's love for John, do you think that John's love for Paul was equal? I think just that John was, John was more damaged and needier so that that you know you have an equal love you have like this this merging love feeling that comes from making music together and you're singing you're singing you're looking at you know your fellow singer as you're singing you you know it's an experience of like you feel like you're you're one you're the same person and um you know but if you add in neediness and desperation into that it's you know it's like a heavier thing do you think Paul, you know, this is one thing that I wondered occasionally is, was it heavy for Paul? I mean, he seems very patient. He seems very patient, yeah. I mean, I didn't get the sense that he got got tired of it or, you know, I mean, based on this eight hours of footage. That, right, so, right. You know, who knows? Yes. I love also that this is so fun because it's like, it's like you get to gossip about somebody, but like, <laughs> that, you're like, oh, you know what? I bet that they're like this and like that, but, oh, you right, know, because right. it's they're they're humans but they're they're like deities too yeah um and you know in archetypes like we all know people like you know who are who are analogs in our life Peter Jackson does this montage of John loves Yoko. And that always frustrates me because I think, well, I'm pretty sure Paul loves Linda. Yeah. It's it's no play. Yeah. yeah, It gets no play. And Paul stayed with Linda his whole life. You know, Paul and Linda are a great couple. But also to say that John loves Yoko, there's something unexplained there. Because you either have to accept that their love is greater you know, that it's like, okay, their love is greater or else John needs something that Paul doesn't. Yeah, you I know? think, I, I, you know, I, that, that, that relationship felt very needy to me, um, you know, as a, as a person who's been in bands, if one of my band members brought their girlfriend in to sit in the sessions, I'd be like, dude, you're at work. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, hats off to Paul for, 
just just ignoring you know like that's how much he wants somebody to throw the ball like he's <laughs> like all right if this is how it's got to be um, you know I, it's amazing that he could continue on with the dynamic and you know continue to make music and talk about songs and stuff but you know i mean i would have felt like that was super super weird and disruptive and but you know it just felt very needy like like i don't know I'm gonna, you know maybe this will help well, but that's the thing, though, is that, you know, the, the John Loves Yoko, it's sort of seen as that's what John had to do to feel better, but he's already with Yoko. You can see when he's talking about across the universe, you know, nothing's going to change my world, and he goes, I, I wish it fucking would. Like, John's unhappy. He's taking heroin. He's with yeah. Yoko. Yoko's not the thing that fixes it, yeah, you know? Yeah, and, You know, you always hope that it's going to do the trick, but, you know, it's just like another just reaching for another substance you know that's how yeah. it felt to me it just felt like you know he was hoping that he could immerse himself in in her uh in the way that he had felt that he did with paul but why do you think he moved you know why do you think if he felt that way with paul and then all of a sudden he does that with yoko do you think again I don't think that the Lennon-McCartney bond was ever truly broken. If you look at the breakup yeah. and, you know, they were constantly reacting and flirting with each other during the seventies. I don't think that connection really went away. So why the need to go to Yoko uh, when he did? Well, you know, because, I mean, as you talk about on the podcast, you know, because Paul had formed a relationship with, with Linda Eastman and, you know, it's partly like trying to match that energy and show Paul and himself, like, I don't need you the way we both know I do. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it just, it just feels a little like a desperate move. I mean, I'm sure they had like genuine affection also, but, you know, it, it does, the timing does seem a little coincidental that, you know, suddenly this is his permanent relationship. Like this is his I'm in love for the first time. Like that is really protesting too much. I'm like, it honestly, is. I was just like, who writes a song? <laughs> who writes a song? Never, never before have I felt this way. Like, okay. Yeah. The weirder thing about that song is, and if somebody ever loved me, you know, and then I guess nobody ever loved me. Yeah. Like, if I was the girlfriend of the guy that was writing this, I'd be like, who are you writing this song to? Because yeah. I'm apparently the one that you're in love with for the first time. But if somebody else actually felt like this, it's a I very know. odd song. Yeah, it's a little convoluted. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot yeah. going on. And, and none of it felt feels like, oh, finally I met the right person and I'm happy. Like none of, none of it feels, it feels, that's how it feels with, with Paul and Linda. They feel like very affectionate. Like, and also, you know, they're, they're, when she's around, she's not around all the time, but when she's around they're they're very touchy, you know, they sort of in that, like, I can't keep my hands off you stage. Yeah. And you don't get that with, I mean, like John never looks at Yoko except for like one time when they, you know, when he grabs her and they waltz tie me mine. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't even look at her like he's not really touching her. I think they kiss, they make out one time or something. Yeah, that's that was my frustration with the John's in love with Yoko montage is it was like um, P. 
Peter Jackson, can you not actually see that the chemistry is between Paul and John? Like, I know we know that oh, yeah. story. I know they told that story, but can we just observe what's actually going on? Oh, just nothing. He can't take his eyes off of him. He's he's constantly looking to him for approval, like, check this out. Watch what I'm doing. Do you like this? We're singing together. You know, doesn't this sound great? It's, I mean, they, it's constant eye contact between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think Paul has had this real spark with Linda. And then John sort of merges with Yoko. And then they get married within one week of each other. Paul gets married and then John gets married a week later. And, you know, the whole falling apart in the spring of 1968 is after Paul gets engaged. And I just think that, as you said, if John has this neediness, it makes sense that if he thinks that Paul is going to be refocused on something, family, which yeah. family is really important to him, that would be a threat. John reacts. I mean, it you know? would be such a threat, you know, like here's another thing that's Paul's going to love more than me that's going to be in between the two of us. There's this interview that John gives in 1971. I don't know if you've ever seen this interview, but um, the interviewer yeah. asked John, he said, so the breakup with Paul, you know, is it, was it because of Linda? And John goes into this deep analysis of, well, we all need our mothers and Paul loves his family and Paul used to listen to his father. And then he chose me. And then he said, and then he met Linda and she married him. And, and I don't get it. And that was the end of the Beatles. And it's so interesting what that his hell? mind goes directly to a story about Paul and family. Paul, family, father, he chose me, which is, that's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And it's it's really important statement, just understanding the, the Lennon-McCartney partnership and the bond between them. Yeah, I'm sure. It's like, you, you know, because in that mindset, you know, there's only room for one love, you know? Right. So... How can how how could Paul possibly love both of us? Right, and also you know everybody was pretty young, yeah, and nobody had a lot of maturity, and nobody had you know everybody had like messed up family situation, and you know and I don't know that much about Paul's. I know his mother died when he was fifteen or fourteen, yeah, but you know it doesn't sound like it was a family that did a lot of acknowledging of feelings. No. Talking about feelings. You know, but they had they had music, which was a kind of substitute, right? I mean, right. I'd be in very interested to know what his mother's, you know, character and, and um, you know, what his dynamic with his mother was. Well, he talks about her. It's interesting because, you know, I, I recorded an episode about the lyrics, his new book that's come out. Of, and I'm a little bit disappointed because there's so many important lyrics that are really transparent that I'd love for him to have addressed, which he yeah. doesn't. Yeah, you really want somebody to, to ask some serious questions, like, you know, really underline some things and ask some serious questions. Yeah, and the people that he gets to interview him just don't do that kind of work. Yeah, I guess my big question is, was his mother, like, you know, a needy, desperate person like John Lennon? No, Oh, she wasn't. Uh -huh. From what he said, she was very, you know, she was a nurse, a head nurse uh, in, a, in a hospital, very, very hardworking, uh -huh. uh, believed that he could elevate the family. Both both parents believed in sort of bettering your station. And it's cute in the book because he talks about 
he, he used to hear her singing or whistling and that meant to him that she was happy. Right. You know, there was like this connection between, um, he said she was very affectionate. And when she died, I do know this, that when she died, they weren't told what she died of. They just saw her bleeding in the hospital. Oh, God. And then his father was almost suicidal. So they whisked the kids to the aunt's place. And apparently they were crying and the kids were told not to, to cry because it was going to be a burden to their father. Wow. I mean, that's really, really rough. Yeah. That's really, really rough that you don't get to have. I mean, at least he wasn't like eight, you know? Yeah. But I mean, still, that's really tough where you you have no way of processing your feelings. You know, where do they go? Where do they go? You know, you can't talk about them. You can't express them. What happens? Well, that's, and then his brother says that Paul just stopped talking and just started playing guitar and that's wow. it. So that's where they went. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where they went. And it's really interesting because Paul has, you know, I've always noticed this statement from Paul is he said, he said this when he was with Heather Mills, but he was like, I was so lucky after Linda died, I met Heather. And he said, it's just like, after my mother died, I met John. Oh my God. I know. So you can see Paul's connection to John. So he's not without neediness. Yeah, he's got his neediness. And he met John, you know, six months after his mother died. And he needs John to be happy and whistling. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) That's interesting. He needs him to be playing music and whistling. Hmm, Interesting. What does it mean when you say that John is traumatized? Well, I mean, I do, you know, his story was that he was was he brought up by his aunt? I'm sorry, like, I know I should know this. It's no, a no, Beatles no. Podcast. It's, like, these no, are well, so- you know what? The good news I know. No, what happened was both of his parents seemed a little flaky. And uh, his father was a merchant seaman. And his father took off to sea. And, and it was during the war. And his mother met another man. Actually, she had another child in oh, the wow. interim with a different man. And then she met another man and hooked up with him. And so when John's father came back... Julia and Alf separated, but his mother and this new boyfriend were living together and they were in some tiny little one room place that John was sleeping in the bed with them. And Mimi didn't think that was appropriate. And then at some point, John's father wanted access to John. So he tried to tried to take John. And then Julia said, no, you can't take him. And there was a battle. And Julia ended up taking him back to Liverpool. And then Mimi swooped in and took John from Julia. Oh, wow. And so John didn't really know his mom. She lived in Liverpool and she had two other kids with this other man. And then John started to get to know her a little bit more. When he was in his early teens, he started going to their house. And Paul Mm -hmm. would go over to Julia's with John And Paul talks about that, about how John was always sad when he was leaving because he was kind of like, well, why can't I stay? Right. You know? He was taken from his mother when he was young. Yeah. And then he was getting closer with his mother when his mother was hit by a car. Yeah. So, you know, you have somebody who was taken from his father Mm -hmm. and then taken from his mother at a very young age. Yep. Uh, probably witnessed a lot of inappropriate sexual activity between yeah. his mother and various other guys. I mean, if he's sleeping in the same bed, like there's something that's going to be going on. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it just feels like a lot of boundary violations, a lot of um, interrupted caregiving. I, you know, that I, that just 
completely sets somebody up for, you know, entering into like a very intense merging kind of relationship that is fraught with a lot of, a lot of codependence and uh, jealousy. I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And so Mimi took him and she was married to a man. This was his, his uncle and the uncle died when John was 15. And, and apparently the uncle was the one that was more demonstrative. And so Paul oh. talks about the fact that John felt like he was a jinx to men in his life. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, what a terrible thing. That's really sad. And Paul's aware of it. You know, he said that he would tell him he wasn't. But I think this thought that men are going to leave, you know. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, and it's just a classic thing when you're convinced somebody's going to leave you that you just, you know, it's just such torture waiting for it to happen. You just make it happen and do it yourself. I think so. And you look at the song Jealous Guy, which Paul has said that John wrote about him. And it's interesting how Paul will say something like that. And he's never claimed another song was about him. Yeah. And it's just not picked up. I've even heard respectable people saying, well, Paul's probably confused. And it's like, Paul McCartney is confused about the one song that he says. No, Paul doesn't, you know, because that's, it's like, connecting I think that's like too emotional for Paul to want to like claim if it's not absolutely true yeah and that's the story it's about a fear of him not loving him you know it just says it right out yeah Yeah. okay so let me go through some of the elements of get back um did they seem like a band you know having been in bands and worked in collaboration did they seem like a band that was on the verge of breaking up to you not to me not at all. I mean, you know, except for one of the members actually left and said he wanted to leave. <laughs> like, I guess, I guess that part is, you know, a bit of a tell. But I mean, you know, I, certainly John didn't seem like he wanted to leave. No. You know, when they're working together, he seems like this is what I want to be doing. And he says that. Michael Lindsay Hogg said, well, John told me he doesn't not want to be a Beatle. Yeah. So he says that. And then John, at the end, when he's talking to Paul and Paul, they have this interesting conversation at the end where Paul and John are looking at each other and you can see John's face. You can just see the back of Paul's head and they're having kind of a serious conversation. And again, a lot of it is cut off, but I know the rest of it. And Paul is like, for us to continue, we have to go in a black bag. And I don't really know what Paul's talking about because he's not very um, clear, but John yeah. seems to understand him. But at that point, John seems to be reassuring Paul, saying, this is my home. I'm happy here. I'm excited to be here. And Paul is still fretting. Yeah, I think I, I didn't pick up on that. I sort of wonder if there's not just a drive to be performing or something like if he Paul just, could he wants to be at it. Yeah. He, he won't, you know, he's, he, he wants to, he's the dog who wants to go on the walk. You know, he, he wants to, he's like ready to get out. Like he, he loves playing. He loves playing with them. And yeah, I mean, I can definitely see that, that frustration in him. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. He seems like somebody like, yes, who was, very sad at the idea that the Beatles might break up, but, you know, but knows that he's not, like, if you had asked him, do you think that you'll never play again? He'd be like, oh, no, I absolutely will. Like, you know, I'll form a, he could form a band with anyone. Yeah. Yeah. This must've been just a period, because I don't think he was on Coke or anything at this period. He's just manic almost, 
because they just finished the White Album, and then he goes and does Mary Hopkins's album. I just don't know if he just has too much energy at that point. I just think everybody else was in a different place. I, you know, and I do think he made a big mistake not realizing how good George's songs were. You know, I was kind of surprised at that. When George is playing Brown Shoe, right? Like nobody, nobody, like I have to admit, like I hadn't even heard that. It was like, what is this song? And, you know, Michael's like, it's one of George's songs. Like, this is fucking great. Why wasn't yeah. this on the record? Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Well, Paul does get up and go and play on the drums and George starts to smile there. You know, yeah. it's like he's happy. I, Maybe it just wasn't finished too. Like you don't, it, you don't know like what shape anything was in. Like, you know, maybe it only had one verse. Like, you yeah, know, it's hard to know like what shape, like I, you don't get enough. I felt like I didn't get enough information about how the songs were written and who came up with what part and, you know, how, how they were contributing to the arrangements. Paul and George have, you know, they clash a little bit more, but Paul, we do know that Paul does deliver on George's songs. Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, I, so I've watched it three times. Oh, my God. I, <laughs> I know. I know. So you've picked up on some things, yeah. I have. And, the, you know, the second and third time, I thought that Paul was paying more attention to George than I thought the first couple of times. Uh-huh. I think the problem is no matter what, his interest in John trumps it. Yeah. And I wonder if he's trying to get John back on track. But I was surprised at how much George does contribute to the arrangement of songs, mm-hmm. how invested George was, actually. Yeah. And the, and the arrangements are so interesting, like the, you know, get, guitar breaks and, you know, just little inter, inter, interstitial moments between verses and things like that. I mean, they're very interesting and, you know, like I'm very curious as to who came up with that yeah i'm wondering this is just a thought i'm wondering if you know the problem is is that george now wants equality within the band and he's writing amazing songs and he's contributing a lot and the dynamics are changing and i just wonder if for that to happen it almost requires lennon and mccartney not to be as strong as they are that that could be you know i definitely got the sense that they just felt they were continuing on with their dynamic and and kind of couldn't really see what George was doing. I mean, certainly song-wise, you know, I mean, I felt like I could have put together a great album <laughs> with these songs. I would have thrown out, you know, like Long and Winding Road because it just, just didn't feel like part of the brief. You know, I thought George's songs were more appropriate, honestly. But, but I, yeah, I think you're right. I think it would have it, it would have derailed the dynamic or would have made the dynamic between Paul and John, not the primary, you know, not the primary focus. Right. Right. And they were just so, you know, they were just so involved with each other and involved with their, I mean, it's true. Like they acted like a couple in love. I mean, honestly, like that's, that is kind of the, kind of the dynamic. I mean, I'm not saying that I believe that that's what was happening, but it was, it was, it was that level of intensity and affection and in jokes and you know trying to please the other person it was that you know had that level yeah and as you said you know you can see from the eye contact so I I had heard a lot of this audio but then seeing the visuals of it was important because you see how much that they are just like locked in looking at each other yeah you know um and that's important and I can understand if you're George that at some point you're just like, well, is anybody even listening to me? Like, you know, that it would be, 
help. Exactly. Yeah. Like where's, you know, where's, where's his, you know, where's his, uh, long, long lingering eye contact, uh, <laughs> you know, shared, shared in jokes. Yeah. Where's all right. that for him? Well, he's got, he's got his Hare Krishna buddies watching him and then oh, he gets boy. Billy, which I think, <laughs> he's, he's got some fans in the band and around the band. So he's got some support, Yeah, but it's not the same. It's um, not the same. Yeah. So and tell me, what did you think of the, the musicianship just watching it? Uh, they're incredible. They're, you know, one of the, you know, explanations for the magic of that band is that they were all uh, you know, four really great players, which just seems like, you know, since they met as kids, like, what are the odds, you know, like, that yeah. these four kids are all going to turn out to be great players. Yeah. I mean, I came later, so that didn't really count, but, but still, you know, like, he's incredible. Who, Ringo? Or yeah, he's just, I mean, I know I'm not the first person to say Ringo Starr is a great drummer, <laughs> but, it, you know, just... You just, I don't know, because the Beatles kind of go into this category of like, oh, yeah, yeah, the Beatles, da, 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 da. and then, you know, you sort of hear them again as if they're a new band and go like, Jesus Christ, this drummer's yeah. fucking great. <laughs> well, in some ways, I think that Ringo is such a natural and he just doesn't make a fuss about what he's doing. It just comes out of him, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I did see, you know, Paul kind of, give giving him ideas for for drum parts that were like very interesting um so i wonder if paul and his arrangement you know constant arrangement brain really contributed to some you know because one of the great things about ringo is he 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 doesn't just sit there and go like duck duck gack, gack, duck gack, gack, you yeah. know like he has really interesting drum parts um you know i wonder how much of that it was uh is paul you know putting in his two cents and also that's you know that's okay like to get ideas from your bandmates so that yeah. everybody's better like that's great yeah I was interested to see how much they were all contributing one of the things that I thought was really fascinating is how John George and Paul how much they harmonized and sung together yeah yeah and you know with the with an ease that just only comes from having sung you know 40 million hours. Yeah. In, in yeah. yeah. And you know what else surprised me is how, um, how much they remembered their old songs together. I know. Yeah. And they're all like happy to just go through their old repertoire. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that was a good idea that they did that? I do because I think it really, it reminded them of like, Oh yeah, we're a band. This is what we do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it, and it, you know, reminded them of good times too. If you were watching and just sort of looking at the band dynamics and we didn't know what was coming, what would you say looking at it? I mean, you just flagged the, the George issue. Is there anything else that you would be looking at saying, you know, I'm a little bit worried about this particular issue? I mean, I hate to say it, but it's impossible to not, like, if this is the first time I ever saw this band and I didn't know who this band was, I would say, why is this guy's girlfriend sitting next to him the yeah. whole time? Yeah. Like that just is, it's a red flag. I mean, not to say anything against Yoko or their relationship or like what it means, but it's just a, it's just a red flag, you know, because it's, it is something that is inserted into the band dynamic and, you know, it's like, what's a red flag? The thing that warns you that, um, you know, there's danger, danger ahead. 
So, I mean, in, in terms of that, like I do think the Yoko thing did kind of predict that there was a, a fissure somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't even imagine. It would drive me crazy working with a partner that has their basically support person advocate sitting there. Yeah, it's like their support person, right? Their comfort comfort object, yeah. It it is their comfort object, but the the problem with that is that I'm sure John felt more comfortable, but he is also unsettling his partner. Yeah. You know, and they're all doing a great job of like trying to just continue on, but it had to make them feel like, you know, something wasn't right. Well, yeah, and Paul... um, Paul talks about that in in the film that he can't write with Yoko there, and I think that that to me is a huge red flag that she is disruptive. If yeah. if Paul can't write with John, I mean, you still see them writing together, so it's not entirely true. But he just said from scratch, it's hard. Yeah, and when you're writing, you're really you really do feel vulnerable, and it's it, it's weird to do it when other people are in the room. What did you make of um, the India scene? Did you notice anything? I felt that everybody was very uncomfortable with the topic of India being brought up. And and Paul was, uh, you know, like, oh, I saw this footage and it was uh, funny and interesting. And and John did not seem amused. He did not. It did did not seem like that was a pleasant memory for him. George definitely seemed mad, Mm -hmm. like, you know nobody liked it that was my suggestion that's what i brought to the group like that was my big cultural thing that i brought to the group and you know people left and it was a disaster and you know i definitely felt like paul drop it this is not (laughs) this is not the topic right now right right yeah it wasn't comfortable and even he was laughing at john like you know looking for the answer and John talks about that in his interviews. He said, eventually, he said, Yoko was the answer. Like, oh, wow. Paul's making fun of him looking for the answer, but I think John was like, I still want the answer. Yeah, yeah, wow. There was a lot of dynamics. I felt like there was a John and Paul dynamic going on. There was a George and Beatles dynamic going on. Yep. There was Ringo watching from the background. You know, Paul is saying, well, we weren't who we were. And John was saying, well, you know, who were we and who were the people writing songs in your room? It's just a lot of yeah, a lot I of mean, subtext. Yeah, a lot of things alluded to that I didn't know what, you know, I was like, I'm not sure what's going on. When you and I were talking, you said that there was a few things that really caught your eye or were interesting what what things were those well that i think the main thing for me was was realizing that you know how disturbed i felt i thought john john was that was the biggest thing and you know and i don't know if that's like because he'd been doing lsd or in heroin you know or a combination of everything but he seemed like a, a traumatized person who it just it's like you know it just had a certain look that was very familiar to me mm-hmm yeah. I mean, that that's why I think cutting the information about heroin is a problem because you don't really understand the context of the way, yeah. the, the, why John is behaving. It's an important part of it. Yeah. Yeah. One time there's a, Paul, before he was on a talk show, was asked about John Lennon and described John and he said, disturbed. Yeah. And agree. And agree. then he like said something nice on the actual show. But I think maybe later he came to figure that out, you know? I mean, you know, from my own experience being 
separated from my mother. My mother left when I was three. And so, you know, I mean, it's a, it's extremely disruptive, you know, yeah. to, to be taken from one parent, then you're taken from another parent. And like, after a while, like you just don't, you know, you, you don't attach to people in the right way. You don't know how, what, what is appropriate. Uh, you know, you, you overattach to certain people or people that are safe, you don't trust it, you know, like it's really fucks with you. And that's, that's what I saw in him. I love that insight coming from somebody who has had a similar type experience. Yeah, it definitely rang a bell. Okay, here's one more question. You, so you're a bass player. Mm -hmm. Did you? What did you think of Paul's bass playing and him writing songs on his bass? Well, it was interesting to see that you know he he would just write songs because he's just writing songs on any instrument. Like he doesn't, you know, he could like pick up a beer bottle and blow into it and like write <laughs> a song from that. You know, he, he's just one of those guys. Like it doesn't matter. I mean. I've written songs on bass too, but like I'm not playing chords on the bass like he was. That mm. was really kind of mind blowing. But you could tell it was like, well, whatever I have, because he can hear all the other parts. Like he doesn't have to play it on piano to hear all the notes of the chords to suggest a melody. Like he can already hear it, it already exists. Did you like the Beatles more as people after you saw it? Or did you find like there was any adjustment of your opinion of them as people afterwards? I think I liked them all much, much more. And each of them just seemed, you know, I have to say, can't really get a read on George. That's the, that's the big slipper. But Ringo seemed very sweet. Um, you know, I felt bad for John, but, you know, I could see how, you know, how charming and interesting and creative yeah. he was. Yeah. And, and Paul just, you know, incredibly talented but also really kind-hearted and you know that really that really speaks a lot for him great thank you this has been so wonderful thank you thank so you. much very fun yeah you know and these are kind of themes we've talked about but they're so not in the conversation of beetledom yeah 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 and I'm sure, you know, because Jean Jacket's going to Jean Jacket. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely what they're going to do. So thank you for this. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's really yeah. nice talking to you. Wow, that was so interesting. That was so fascinating. Wasn't she amazing? Yes, I'm just, I'm so curious about everything now. <laughs> I know, I know. You know what? And, and you know, I mentioned a number of quotes. I, I sort of paraphrased them throughout the episode. So what I'd like to do is actually take this opportunity and share the exact quotes that I was referring to. It's great. 
This is what Hunter Davey said on the subject of writing the Beatles biography. The most enjoyable part of doing the whole book was being present at Abbey Road. John's doziness at home left him when he was in the studio. Working with Paul seemed to make him more alive. The others' presence seemed to bring out the best in each of them. And this is what John Lennon said to Hunter Davies in 1967. You'll have to imagine John's voice. If I'm on my own for three days doing nothing, I almost completely leave myself. I'm at the back of my head. I can see my hands and realize they're moving, but it's like a robot who's doing it. I have to see the others to see myself. Then I realize there is someone like me, so it's reassuring. And this is what John said to author Peter McCabe in 1971 for what is now known as the St. Regis interview. When did you first meet Linda? John says, the first time I saw her was after that press conference to announce Apple in America. We were just going back to the airport and she was in the car with us. I didn't think she was particularly attractive. I wondered what he was bothering having her in the car for. A bit too tweety, you know. But she sat in the back of the car and took photographs, and that was it. And the next minute, she's married him. Then a couple minutes later, McCabe asked John, was it the suddenness of Linda's arrival on the scene that disrupted things? And John says, well, Paul had met her before, you see. I mean, there were quite a few women he'd obviously had that I never knew about. God knows when he was doing it, but he must have been doing it. And then McCabe says, well... So, John, you and Paul were probably the greatest songwriting team in a generation, and you had this huge falling out. Were there always huge differences between you and Paul? Or was there a time when you had a lot in common? And John responds, Well, we all want our mummies. I don't think there's any of us that don't, and he lost his mother, so did I. That doesn't make womanizers of us, but we all want our mummies, because I don't think any of us got enough of them. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But Paul always wanted the home life, you see. He liked it with daddy and brother, and obviously missed his mother. And his dad was the whole thing, just simple things. He wouldn't go against his dad and wear drainpipe trousers. And his dad was always trying to get me out of the group behind my back, I found out later. He'd say to George, why don't you get rid of John? He's just a lot of trouble. Cut your hair nice and wear baggy trousers, like I was the bad influence because I was the eldest, so I had all the gear first, usually. So... Paul was always like that, and I was always saying, face up to your dad, tell him to fuck off, he can't hit you, you can kill him, he's an old man. I used to say, don't take that shit off him, because I was brought up by a woman, so maybe it was different, but I wouldn't let the old man treat me like that. He treated Paul like a child all the time, cut his hair and telling him what to wear at 17, 18, but Paul would always give in to his dad. His dad told him to get a job? He fucking dropped the group and started working on the fucking lorry, saying, saying, I need a steady career. We couldn't believe it. My Aunt Mimi reminded me of this the other night. He rang up and said he got this job and couldn't come into the group. So I told him on the phone, either come in or you're out. So he had to make a decision between me and his dad then. And in the end, he chose me. But it was a long trip. So it was always the family thing, you see. If Jane Asher was to have a career, then that's not going to be a cozy family, is it? All the other girls were just groupies, mainly. And with Linda, not 
only did she have a ready-made family, but she knows what he wants, obviously, and has given it to him. The complete family life. He's in Scotland. He told me he doesn't like English cities anymore. So that's how it is. And then McCabe says, so you think with Linda he's found what he wanted? And John says, I guess so. I, I guess so. I just don't understand. I never knew what he wanted in a woman because I never knew what I wanted. I knew I wanted something intelligent or something arty, whatever it was. But you don't really know what you want until you find it. So anyway, I was very surprised with Linda. I wouldn't have been surprised if he'd married Jane Asher because it had been going on for a long time and they went through that whole ordinary love scene. But with Linda, it was just like, boom, she was in and that was the end of it. And then McCabe says, did Paul put Jane off for many years when she wanted to get married? And John responds, I have no idea. We never discussed our private lives like that. I never asked him. We got over, did you get a bit of tit? And what's happening then? All that scene, we didn't talk about it. And then McCabe asks, so Paul split and your falling out was essentially with him? And John says, right. And just to fact check, John, um, I believe Cynthia Lennon said that uh, John also had a hard time getting the uh, Drainies past Mimi and didn't ever want to confront her about those. So, And also, Paul never actually quit the Beatles, but he did have a job for a while. This is from Paul McCartney's book, The Lyrics. Paul says, I didn't know it when we first met, but John had suffered so many personal tragedies. His father disappeared when he was three and reappeared only much later. And when John was famous and found his dad washing dishes in a local pub, John wasn't allowed to stay with his mother. So the family sent him to live with Aunt Mimi and Uncle George, which they thought would be better for him. And it might have been. Who really knows? John lived with Mimi and George for most of his childhood, but when he was about 14, George died. I didn't know his uncle, but I remember John saying to me a few years later, I think I'm a jinx on the male line. I would have to reassure him and respond, no, it's not your fault your father left you or that Uncle George died. It's nothing to do with you. In this way, I tried to give him the kind of reassurance I had from my home. Also in the book, The Lyrics, Paul says about the song, Dear Friend. He's talking about John saying things about the Beatles, and he says, um, those were quite hurtful barbs to be flinging around, and I was the person they were being flung at, and it hurt. So I'm having to read all this stuff, and on the one hand, I'm thinking, oh, fuck off, you fucking idiot. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, why would you say that? Are you annoyed with me? Or are you jealous or what? And thinking back 50 years later, I still wonder how he must have felt. He'd gone through a lot. His dad disappeared, and then he lost his uncle George, who was a father figure. His mother, Stuart Sutcliffe, Brian Epstein, another father figure, and now his band. But John had all those emotions wrapped up in a ball of linen. That's who he was. That was the fascination. I tried. I sort of tried answering him here, asking, does it need to be this hurtful? And I think it's a good line. Are you afraid, or is it true? Meaning, why is this argument going on? Is this because you're afraid or something? Are you afraid of the split up? Are you afraid of my doing something without you? Are you afraid of the consequences of your actions? And the little rhyme, or is it true? Are all these hurtful allegations true? This song came out in that kind of mood. 
that's an excerpt from Paul McCartney's The Lyrics, which uh, Duncan Driver and I are going to discuss in detail uh, in our talk about the book, The Lyrics, which will be coming up in an episode soon.
that was the amazing and brilliant Amy Mann. I hope you enjoyed her music and the interview. And we will be back very soon with another Get Back series interview. Thanks for listening. If you are a fan of the podcast, please consider leaving a five-star rating or review as it really helps promote the podcast. Until next time, bye. Except the freaks who suspect they could never love anyone. Except the freaks who could never love anyone.